Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello everyone and welcome back to Battle Walks, where we are walking the great battlefields of Europe. Well, I say that, but this week we are about as far away from Europe as you could possibly be. We're taking an excursion into the Pacific. I know there's a lot of World War II fans out there, and so we're going to do something that I think everyone will find really interesting. We're going to walk one of the most famous Pacific battlefields of World War II, Guadalcanal. It's a place that I love. It's in the Solomon Islands north of Australia. It's a fascinating place. I love going over there. I've been there many times and it's just a really intriguing destination. So a little bit of a departure from what we normally do on battle walks, but I think it's going to be interesting. Pete, interesting one for you as well. Oh, it is. It is because I've never been. Uh, so I know nothing and I know very little about it. So I've been buffing up on, on the history and uh, trying to get a, a feel for it. Um, but I'm looking forward to uh, to listening to what you've got to say as well. <laughs> It's a nice balance, mate, because normally you're leading me around some of these uh, amazing battlefields that I haven't been to. So this one will be a little bit different. It's a battlefield I know very, very well and have walked the ground oh, a dozen or more times probably. But um, it's it's going to be a good one. I think it's going to be a good one for everyone. And in a way, Pete, I think you represent the listeners here. You can put forward the questions that you would ask about this relatively unknown corner of the world. So, I mean, you, Pete, you spend, I know you live in a World War One battlefield, but you also do quite a bit of touring around the World War Two sites of Europe. Is Does World War Two hold that same fascination for you as World War One does? 
Oh, absolutely. And I mean, in reading your notes and doing a bit of research on this, even more so because there are the relics and the site is fairly much unchanged from the fighting. And that's what I really enjoy is when something you can actually pin down where you are exactly. You can, you can look at enemy positions and, and, and work it out as you're, as you're walking. And certainly that's the feel I get from, uh, from this action. Uh, so yes. So yes, it's, uh, it has a, a bit of everything really. And, uh, I'm looking forward to, as uh, hopefully the listeners are as well, to finding out more about the uh, the battle itself. Well, let's talk a little bit about Guadalcanal. Maybe we should start with where it is. So it's it's northeast of Australia in the in the Pacific Ocean, uh, east of New Guinea. So uh, it's it's about a three hour flight from Brisbane in Australia. If you head up there to uh, to the Solomon Islands. And this is the main island in the Solomon's chain. So it's called Guadalcanal and it sounds like a waterway, but it's not. It's the name of the island. It's a Spanish name from Spanish explorers that came through there centuries before the Second World War. And they called it Guadalcanal. And the reason this is even featuring in the history books uh, is because the Japanese will do a quick little summation of the Pacific War at this stage. So we're talking very early in the Pacific War here. This was the first campaign America participated in during the during the Pacific War during the Second World War in its entirety. And what had happened is obviously on December 7, 1941, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. And at the same time, they began their advance through Asia and the Pacific and did very well over the uh, over the coming months. And so by early 1942, they'd captured large parts of Asia and the Pacific. Uh, and particularly the Dutch East Indies was a major target for them. Today's Indonesia because of its ample supplies of oil and rubber. And to protect those gains, what they called the uh, the uh, Greater East Asian Co-Prosperity Sphere was the name the Japanese Empire gave the uh, the whole area. Uh, they 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 came up with a very clever plan. They were going to secure islands in the Pacific that formed a ring around their conquests in Asia and build airfields on each of those islands. And the theory was that would then protect them from the US Navy, who they knew were, were sure to uh, launch attacks on them. And we can't overstate the importance, Pete, of aircraft during the Second World War. It, they're still very important today. Obviously, air, air superiority is, is everything in warfare. But during World War II, when we didn't have missile technology, we didn't have, you know, particularly effective ways of shooting down aircraft. And when everything was transported by ship, aircraft, especially in an ocean environment like the Pacific, were an absolutely deadly weapon, weren't they? Yeah, well, I suppose you can see here that uh, an aircraft carrier can sink. You cannot sink an island. So if you can build uh, air bases uh, on these islands, then far, far better than, than spending lots of money on aircraft carriers that don't particularly last very long occasionally. I heard a, a great uh, example recently about the importance of aircraft carriers and island bases in the Pacific War and actually linking them back through history to castles and it made it, and, and at both levels, it was it really increased my understanding of, of the importance of these in warfare. Because if you think about a thousand years ago, when a castle was the important thing, like why, when the Normans conquered England, why did they build castles everywhere? And when you look, think about it a little bit more, what you realise is castles don't just hold people; they also hold horsemen, and men on horses could be garrisoned in the castle. And what that effectively meant is that any army attacking the castle could be repelled within one day's ride of the castle. Uh, they could send the horses, the horsemen out, they could fight and then they could come back to the castle and shelter that night and have food, treat their wounded, replenish their weapons, swap their horses out for new ones if they have to and come out and fight again. So it meant within one day's ride of any castle, the castle dominated the landscape and no, it was very difficult for an army to attack it. It's the same thing with an aircraft carrier fleet and particularly with an island. If you have aircraft based on, a, on an island, 
any ship, no ship can get within uh, within range of that island during daylight hours when the planes could fly during the Second World War. And that was an interesting thing about the Guadalcanal campaign as we get into it, is that it was a campaign which where the, the sides, uh, the, the possession of the island effectively changed hands every uh, every 12 or so hours because in daylight, the Americans dominated it with their air power and at nighttime, the Japanese dominated it with their Navy. So it's just a really fascinating account. Pete, did you grow up, I mean, you grew up in the 60s. Did you grow up with stories of Guadalcanal? I did, uh, and more so. Be uh, obviously, I served as a, for those that don't know, I served as a Royal Marine, uh, and so Guadalcanal to me also means uh, American Marines. It kind of goes goes hand in hand. So yes, I was always aware of Guadalcanal. Uh, I knew about it. Uh, I'd watched some of the uh, the early war films and also the documentaries as I was growing up. So yes, it was it was a name that I knew, but one that I didn't. I have to say, was not. It just seemed so far away that it was interesting, but not that interesting with Europe just being on the doorstep. Well, it's a fascinating one, and I apologise. There's a lot of information that I'm trying to get across here because I just think it's so it's it's such a novel story compared to what we normally do. So I'm bombarding you with information about it, but just to set the context before we do the walk. At the end of the day, this history is going to come down to us strolling the ground and and walking in the footsteps of the men. But the, the context is important in this one. So if we've got that concept of what the Japanese were trying to do. Build, take all these gains, these material gains in Asia and then protect them with island, with a ring, of, a fortress of, of island defences with airfields on them. In uh, May 1942, they set their sights on the Solomon Islands. And this was as part of a plan. They were going to capture Numea, they were going to capture Fiji, and they were effectively going to isolate Australia from America, uh, which they thought was an important plan. They were not going to invade Australia. Let's get that one out of the way. I don't want to wander off too far on a tangent, but the Japanese were not intending to invade Australia. They were going to isolate Australia by capturing Pacific Islands, which in effect would have done exactly the same thing. But they weren't going to land troops uh, and try and capture Australia. And so in May 1942, they'd arrived at the Solomon Islands and captured the Solomon Islands uh, and began building an airfield on the island of Guadalcanal, this, this, the main island of, of the Solomon Islands chain. At this stage, the Americans had come into the war after Pearl Harbor, but they had a, a Germany first policy. They were simply going to garrison the Pacific, join the war against Germany, defeat the Germans, and then deal with the Japanese. They felt that the Japanese could be contained by their very strong Navy, uh, and uh, therefore they could deal with Germany first. But all of a sudden, right on Australia's doorstep, um, with the threat of completely isolating Australia and then removing America's main base from the Pacific War, they all of a sudden found the Japanese were building this airfield. So they couldn't allow it to happen. So in spite of their you know, their reluctance to join the Pacific War on the ground, America realised it had to act. And so it had to act pretty swiftly. So they turned around, they looked who they had around, and due to some complicated political manoeuvrings with Australia wanting to bring troops home from the Middle East, America had agreed to support Australia and New Zealand by sending garrison troops to Australia and New Zealand. So in early 1942, we found that we had American troops in Australia and New Zealand. And one of the units that was in the Pacific was the uh, 1st Marine Division, which was garrisoning uh, New Zealand. They were in Wellington and um, had just been sent there simply as a garrison force. And they were so unprepared for battle. Most the average age was 18 of these soldiers. They were so unprepared for battle that they'd only been issued with World War One kit because all the all the uh, all the new technology was being saved for the army, who they knew would be fighting in Europe, and so the the First Marine Division had 1918 bolt action rifles. They had rations from 1918. 
Uh, they even had originally when they first arrived, they had 1918 helmets, the old helmets, Pete, that we uh, we recognise from the Western Front. So, mate, your knowledge actually comes in pretty strongly here because you will uh, be able to uh, visualise quite easily how they were kitted out. It's quite extraordinary. The other thing about it as well is that the ships, because they were in garrison duty, the ships had that brought them to New Zealand had been loaded for garrison duty. So all the weapons at the far end of the hold and all the food and toilet paper and all the day-to-day things at the front of the hold, when they received instructions that now they were going to go off and be a fighting force, they had to unload all of the ships and repack everything for you know, into a combat loading, which they had to do in the middle of a New Zealand winter on the rainy docks of Wellington. So it was not the most auspicious start to a campaign. Pete, how, what does that do to a unit when the logistics are just so disorganised from the outset? What does it do to the morale of the men? What was it like to be a man in uniform at the back end of that uh, of those issues? You would have to say what morale. Uh, it would absolutely kill morale. Uh, the one thing that you, as a fighting man, what you want, you want to know where everything is, that it's all to hand, that you've had experience of using it, that all your kit is your own kit. And the problem with that, if you've been prepared for garrison duty, then everything wouldn't even be your own equipment. Almost certainly it would be just stuff that was handed out. So they've got to be re-kitted out. And even if that happens and they get the right kit and it's the right place, you need time to get used to it, for it to wear into your body and for you to get uh, just just get used to handling uh, new equipment. And so that would all be uh, not available. The other thing, as well as garrison troops, then there wouldn't be that camaraderie, I guess, of guys that have seen and worked together and perhaps even if you haven't seen any combat have been training ready for an invasion or for a landing uh, you need that camaraderie and that belief in your in your fellows alongside of you. So that wouldn't be there as well. So there's there's so so much that's not going to be there for these guys. It certainly was a messy situation to to say the least, and 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 incredible to think that those battlefields you walked, Pete. I mean, I'm thinking about the machine guns they carried as well, the big well water cooled, the American equivalent M41 or whatever it is, the American equivalent of the Vickers. Um, which they would have used in the Mers-Argonne. And now the uh, the Marines are still issued with those weapons and the bolt-action rifles, the helmets, the whole thing. When I was in Guadalcanal on one trip a few years ago, whenever you go to the major battlefield sites, local kids come running out of the jungle with bags full of relics that they've collected and try to sell them to you for a few dollars. And the thing that I always love about Americans when it comes to relics is Americans stamp the date on everything. Even the Coke bottles, the glass bottles that Coca-Cola came in, they stamp the date on the on the Coke bottles. So you know what era everything's come from. Guadalcanal became a major base later in the war. And so for the rest of the war, there were literally millions of troops passed through there. So most of the relics that you find are from later in the war when it was a training base, not from the actual fighting there. But I was half-heartedly going through these this assemblage of wreckage that the, of relics that these kids were showing me. And there was a, they had a couple of water bottles. And I looked at one was from 45 and another one was from 43. And I'm going, oh, that's getting a little bit closer to the mark. And then I turned the last one over and stamped on the bottom, 1918. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. <laughs> one of the original Marine water bottles that they brought with them. The only way that got there was a Marine carried that when he went there in the first contingent. This, this whole podcast might just be one giant tangent. We're never going to get to the walk at this rate. But it's, <laughs> exactly. it's, just, just, a fascinating, it's just such a fascinating story. This might be a long one. But um, so that's the situation. So the poor old first Marine unit soon, because not not in not in a small part because of their exploits on Guadalcanal, would soon become one of the most famous forces in the entire U.S. contribution to the Second World War. So the first Marine Division headed off, and their commander was uh, was General Vandergrift, 
And uh, so when liaising with the commanders of the Pacific War of the Pacific War that was coming up, uh, they said, how long do you need to get the 1st Marine Division ready to fight? And he said, six weeks. And uh, they said, OK, we'll give you six days. And they pushed the landing date back from the 1st of August to the 7th. And off they went. They went off. They sailed up. They couldn't even say the name right. They, they had the name spelt wrong on the maps. They didn't have any maps to speak of. And they had with them an Australian who had worked in a coconut plantation on the island. And he was traveling with them as a bit of a scout to tell them what they might encounter when they landed. And under such conditions, the Americans made the first amphibious landing of the Second World War. When on the 7th of August, 1942, they hit the beaches of Guadalcanal. That's just an incredible story, Pete. How does that make, as a historian and as a former service member, how does that whole story make you feel? Terrified. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just terrifying. Uh, yeah, it, they they must have uh, pulled it together at the last minute, and uh, but yeah, the men, the mental stress on the commanders. Never mind the men, but the commanders taking their their men ashore uh, in such kind of unknown conditions and not knowing. Uh, well, not knowing a great deal of anything. God, terrifying. Well, that's the, the backstory of why Guadalcanal occurred. And we're going to do several other walks on Guadalcanal because there's so much to see. But let's we'll talk about what happened. So, they, fortunately for the troops, they landed unopposed. There weren't many Japanese combat troops on the island. Most of the troops there were, were construction troops building an airfield. And so, the Americans landed unopposed. They quickly captured the airfield which was a boon for them. It's one of the great mistakes the Japanese made was that they didn't defend the airfield on Guadalcanal because they lost the airfield on the second day uh, and never regained it. The, the rest of the Guadalcanal campaign, if you want to understand what the campaign of Guadalcanal was about, it was about that airfield. The, Ameri- the Japanese began to build it. The Americans captured it on the second day of the campaign and then the Japanese spent the next six months trying to capture it back. So every major attack that the Japanese launched on Guadalcanal was to try and recapture the airfield. It was the first and the longest Pacific campaign. It went on for more than six months. And the basic idea was that the Marines held the beachhead and the, and, the, and the ground near the coast. And the Japanese every night would send in shiploads full of men to try and launch big attacks to take it back. Uh, and it was just some of the most savage, brutal fighting of the Pacific War. Just, just ghastly. It was difficult for people to reinforce. The Americans couldn't reinforce very well. The Japanese couldn't reinforce very well. The men would run out of food on the island. There were seven huge naval battles that took place in the waters around Guadalcanal. It just became what's well, the turning point of the Pacific War. This was, a, this was an, an epic moment. They often call it the Gettysburg of the Pacific because this was the point where the Japanese, the furthest they advanced through the Pacific before they were turned back. But just an absolutely epic campaign. And we'll go into more detail about the incredible battles that took place that the Marines took place uh, in during 1942 and into the early part of 1943. But today we're actually going to focus on a story that isn't so well known. It's not so well known from the history books, but it's fairly well known through books and movies. We're going to talk about The Thin Red Line, which was a famous book by um, by James Jones, who wrote the book in 1962. He served on Guadalcanal as a private and he wrote this book, The Thin Red Line. Uh, a couple of movies have been made from the book. It's 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 become one of the most famous stories of the Pacific War. And this wasn't a marine action. This was an army action. And people overlook the poor old army in this whole story. But the army arrived late in 42 and fought some very tough actions. And they also, they also fought this action called the Thin Red Line. And that's what we're going to explore today. Pete, have you read the book or seen the movies, The Thin Red Line? <laughs> I think I've read the book a long time ago. So I, it's, it's highly likely one of those that I read as I was 
basically my interest in military history was growing um, because it does uh, ring a bell. But for either movie, no, I can't remember watching either movie. So, so I feel I feel like I should have watched it before we got this podcast on the on the uh, underway. But uh, no, I'll I'll be going and tracking down both of the movies, both of the uh, the versions of the movie. Well, the one people would be most familiar with would be uh, the Terence Malick film in 1998, um, which was long and starred Sean Penn and several others and um, Nick Nolte. And was it was an interesting, it's an unusual war film. It, it spent a lot of time dealing with the emotions of the men. There was a lot of self-reflection. There was a lot of, there was a lot of lying in the dirt, noticing a butterfly crawling on a leaf and a lot of that sort of stuff. So it was an interesting film. It was filmed in far north Queensland. It wasn't filmed in Guadalcanal. Um, it was an interesting film. Not not bad. Uh, not one of my favourites, but not a bad film. Uh, I may have actually seen it. You've uh, in saying that, I've uh, I've got a feeling I have actually seen it, but it obviously didn't stick in my mind. The parts that they deal with of the battle that we're going to cover on this walk are particularly well done uh, in terms of following the history. They do give you a good perspective of what was going on. Parts of it are complete fiction, um, but um, the the parts of the battle they deal with were really quite uh, quite well done. To, to at least give you some inspiration for what this story was about. But that's what we're going to cover, the, the thin red line, um, which is a famous expression used originally for, obviously, the British Redcoats, the thin red line holding back probably against the Zulus or someone like that, Pete. Do you know where the thin red line comes from? I think it's, I think it's earlier than that, but I'm not, I'm not uh, completely sure. I, I get the feeling it's possibly Quebec and Wolf um at quebec but i'm not sure somebody i'm sure will say no that's not right uh, but that's what instantly jumps into my head that it's that it's it's from some time ago um we're not if sure you, um if if you know the origins of the red line certainly um send us a tweet or a message on facebook and let us know but uh this is what uh james jones called his novel it's an interesting thing about guadalcanal there was a number of people who served in the campaign who went on to great careers as writers and so it means that we have a really good um, base of source material written by people who experienced it firsthand. And even though, even though Thin Red Line is a novel, it's based almost perfectly on uh, James Jones' experiences. And he's actually one of the characters in the book, but he never revealed which one he was. But sleuths have worked it out based on his service record. And it's so it's fascinating. We've we've had great writers um, through um, through the years that served on Guadalcanal and wrote fascinating memoirs about them. So we we know a lot about the fighting here in a way that we otherwise wouldn't simply because of the quality of the writing that came out of the campaign. But we sh- So we should talk about the army. So the army arrived late in 42. By this stage, the Marines had captured large swathes of the coast and had built a perimeter around the airfield and were protecting the airfield. By now, the Japanese had given up on trying to take the airfield and the, it was the Americans' turn to go on the offensive and they realised they had to push the Japanese off the island and to, to win the campaign. And so the army was sent in to start attacking the Japanese in their strongholds in the hills that overlooked the coast. And the interesting thing about this, Pete, is that today when you go to Guadalcanal, there are lots of interesting sites to see associated with Marines. Um, but most of those sites, or many of those sites, are now obscured by modern development because they're all along the coastline. But the army sites are up in the hills and the jungles overlooking the, the modern town. Uh, and therefore, because they're isolated, they tend to be much better preserved. So even though we remember Guadalcanal as a marine action, it's actually the army sites that offer better resources 
for the modern visitor. It's it's quite interesting, and I think it's a, it's a good thing that the army gets its dues in the Pacific War because we think of the Pacific War as a marine action, the Marines landing these amphibious landings, but the army committed hugely more troops than the Marines did and fought many tougher battles in many cases and did a, a, the the lion's share of the lifting. The Marines were vital, obviously, to the action, but it was the army who who contributed most of the manpower and did a lot of the heavy lifting during the war. I can feel that we should be strapping on our boots if we're heading up to the high ground uh, and uh, also taking with us lots of water, which is something I'm sure we'll be talking about in a little while. Yeah, both very good points indeed. So we're heading up to this feature. The Thin Red Line was on a feature known as Galloping Horse, and I'd encourage everyone listening to get on Google Maps or download a picture it's fairly obvious why this feature is called Galloping Horse. It's interesting terrain in Guadalcanal. It's jungled and interspersed with bald little hills, and they're scattered across the whole landscape. So the Americans had to come up with a way of, of making sense of this tangled geography. So the way they did it, instead of normally, normally they would mark a hill by the height, either in feet or meters, but they found that many of the hills were the same height. So that didn't do much of a job distinguishing them. So they simply went uh, east to west and numbered the hills from one all the way upward. And so one, two, three, four, based on the map, they just numbered them in that order. Uh, And that's why we see this. There's a feature that is a number of hills joined together. And when you look at it on a map, uh, if you look at it, it looks like a galloping horse. I mean, when you look at it with north at the top, the horse is actually upside down. So flip your map over so that uh, so that you're actually so that south is at the top and you'll see fairly clearly it does look like a prancing horse. And so the feature was known from the air as galloping horse. The feature next to it is known as the seahorse because of its shape as well. And it's basically a series of hills sticking out of jungle. Uh, and the Japanese would use these hills and ridges as a transport and resupply route because obviously trekking through the jungle is really difficult. Um, so walking across the, the, the flat hills, the, 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 the featureless hills, was, was easier for them. So these, these features became supply routes for the Japanese. And the main Japanese stronghold was known as the Gifu, and it was a stronghold uh, at Mount Austin, another main feature of the battlefield. We'll get into these in more detail in other walks. But... Basically, the idea is this was a Japanese supply route to keep their troops reinforced. And so the Americans wanted to capture it to prevent the Japanese from reinforcing and to hopefully surround this key Japanese feature known as the Gifu. So they sent the army in. This is now January 1943. This is some of the latest fighting of the campaign. And the uh, the army was sent in. Uh, the 25th Division was sent in. And it was the 27th Regiment, the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 27th Regiment that were sent to capture this feature known as galloping horse and pete i sent you a map and you it it actually it's one of those features doesn't take too much imagination to see why it's called galloping horse no it it doesn't indeed and uh it's also very interesting i I, as per normal would have presumed that the the numbers were in fact height so that was interesting i didn't realize that they're just uh, numerical Uh, but you can see the saddles in between the the ridges and i i know from reading about the actions here how interesting that you could from one one high ground you could see the next place that you were trying to get to and in fact watch the attacks going in so again i started to have a feeling of deja vu that we were talking about first world war actions where you're trying to get to the high ground to have a look at what's going on in the next ground and i'm going to jump on the head a bit i'm sure you were going to talk about uh, about this map but i just found this absolutely fascinating in reading that uh, down to battalion level battalion commanders they were overflown the objectives uh, in aircraft because we had air superiority in fact the Germ- the uh, germans the japanese had very few uh, aircraft in the area at all and certainly very very little uh, air defense so we're able to actually to fly our senior commanders and and officers down to uh, battalion commanders to actually 
go and have a look at the the ground they were going to be operating on. And I just found that absolutely fascinating that they could do that. Yeah, it's, the whole story is fascinating. You, you make a good point there too. Is it, It's a very small battlefield. Anyone that's ever been up there, I've taken lots of people up there. And when they get up, they're just amazed if they know the story of how small the area is. It's a tiny battlefield. And the fighting Guadalcanal tended to be squads and sections and man-to-man. This was very much a very small unit type of fighting, probably more in common with Vietnam than than, than with Normandy or the, or the First World War. Uh, just because of the nature of the terrain. Small hills, small patches of jungle. And in that environment, your squad of 10 or 12 men will be instrumental in how how you move forward. Very difficult to, con- to keep control of large formations like battalions in that uh, in that condensed space. So we find very small squad actions taking place um, all over the place. And this is a great example. Even though we had two battalions here of the, of the regiment participating, it was really only the second battalion that did most of the fighting. They were supported by the first, but it was the second that did most of the fighting. And really only a couple of companies... So we're only talking a couple of hundred men, three or four hundred men that, that participated in this attack uh, when you look at the main fighting that went forward. Um, so really very small actions, but but vitally important. And they did great things in a small space of ground. It's interesting, Pete, isn't it, how the history remembers these actions. This is one of the most famous actions of the Second World War, yet carried out by effectively only a handful of men. You, you, you could have served for years in the army and never have met anyone who'd even been to Galloping Horse during the Second World War. It's yep. extraordinary. Absolutely. And I have to say, uh, I had to look to to check how many men were in a squad and a platoon and a company and a battalion because it's something that I'm not used to, the, the American system. So it was very interesting. I don't know. I thought somehow I thought they were bigger than the British system, but but they're not at all. And so, yeah, to get an idea of how many men when we were talking about the squad or the platoon, uh, it was necessary to do some research. I'm just going to say how many. So three squads in a platoon, and that's 40 men with a second lieutenant, uh, lieutenant. I should be saying, lieutenant, uh, lieutenant uh, in, in command. So, yeah, so very small actions uh, taking place. Absolutely extraordinary. Some heroic actions as well. Well, let's, um, that's the background. So basically, Japanese occupy this high ground. Americans are going to come in. The Japanese by this stage were completely unable to reinforce their men. And so the, the port, we, we do always have to spare a thought for the Japanese in this. No food, very little water. Um, racked by disease. There was one description of a prisoner that they captured during this action and they, he was so weak that they tied him to a pole like a, like a pig that you just captured. And um, that was the only way they could get him down off the hill. And the whole way down, he was um, messing his trousers as he went down because he was just so racked with dysentery. So just horrific conditions. I mean, there's no doubt the Japanese are obviously brut- a brutal enemy especially in this campaign, but um, just there, was, there, were no, there were no winners if you had to fight on Guadalcanal. The Japanese called it Starvation Island. In spite of that, the Japanese were still determined to defend every part of this island and the casualties would be enormous for the Americans to capture this space. So let's go and walk the ground. No, I was just, it was just talking about a casualty evacuation. And again, it was something that I found uh, very interesting because I'm used to talking about uh, the evacuation of casualties uh, on the Western Front. The fact that uh, for a stretcher should be just two men, one at each end. Uh, well, in most cases, uh, it was one on each corner. So four men carrying a, a stretcher out. And here, between uh, six men, sometimes eight men, and occasionally 12 men to get one uh, litter, which is the American term for a stretcher, out of 
this terrain and uh, I just found that absolutely fascinating and I presume it's just because of the heat uh, the temperature and and the the difficulty of the terrain so so yeah more men needed here than 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 we when we think of the first of one we think of the the, the battlefields of Passchendaele and the enormous effort to get the wounded uh, away from the front well the same here well, Pete, thank you for adding that because it's a really important point. And when I take, I occasionally I lead tours to Guadalcanal and take a group over there. And, you know, the the one thing I should say is the town of Honiara, which is the capital of Guadalcanal, is actually the remains of the US base. Oh, that's something I should have mentioned. The town of Honiara, which is now the capital, is the remains of the US base from the Second World War. When the local people came back after the war, they found that on the island of Tulagi, which used to be the capital, they had their native village. But on this main island of Guadalcanal, they now had a fully functioning base with plumbing and buildings and electricity. And so it made sense that that would become the new capital. And the airfield that the Japanese began constructing and the Americans took over, and the Americans named Henderson Field after, after Lofton Henderson, a man killed at Midway, Henderson Field is now Honiara International Airport. So when you fly in, you land at the airfield that was the point of the whole campaign. So the town of Honiara, which is the only place you will stay in the Solomon Islands, is the battlefield. Every time you walk down to the supermarket or down to the pub or walk down the street, you there's a place I love going to, which is the Yacht Club at Honiara. It's really just a big thatched roof with some plastic tables and chairs and cold, cheap cold beer and a good place to get a hamburger. One of my favorite places to go at the end of a long day. The little tiny beach right in front of the Yacht Club, there's a plaque recording how uh, a Medal of Honor was awarded there during a, during a landing in 1942. So every part of the town is the battlefield. The town only exists because of the battles that took place here during Guadalcanal. Um, and so that's a really important uh, point to remember. And again, why I was saying that many of the marine sites were obscured by development, but the army sites are still there. So we're going to begin, when you talk about the casualty evacuation, Pete, one of the things I always do on these tours is most of the time we're in the town and we're driving in an air-conditioned bus and we're heading up to the to the sites and we're walking out and getting around. It's super hot. It's always deathly hot, humid, tropical storms. It's a tough environment. But the thing that people miss out on is the jungle experience because the jungle is now, you know, it's, it's off in, you have to go out and, you know, there's jungle all around, but no one's just going to wander off into the jungle. So when we go out to certain sites, I take people and we literally walk off the road 20 metres into the jungle and then I just get everyone to spread out. And I've seen Gary Mackay, my good friend and Vietnam veteran, do the same thing in Vietnam. And it's just extraordinary. Gary does it with his people. He says, you don't understand what it's like to fight in the jungle. So let's spread out in the jungle and try to even spot each other, let alone communicate. And if someone steps 10 meters away from you, they just disappear into the gloom. It's dark is the other thing as well. It is really dark in there. It is cloying sounds echo around in a way that you can't track where they're coming from and you just cannot keep in contact with the people around you. And so trying to fight in that environment, both sides tried pretty hard to avoid fighting in the jungle in Guadalcanal if they could because it was just so difficult. Um, but again, evacuation of the wounded was a, was a real issue and, and the rivers became, the river we're going to talk about here, the Matanico, the famous river uh, that, that was featured in all the battles of Guadalcanal pretty much. Um, the Americans set up a, a, a sort of a, um, a float system on there with rafts to carry wounded down the river to try and get them back to the coast where the hospitals were. So, yeah, really good point, Peter. It's uh, one of the um, really difficult parts of fighting here. I can't imagine what it must be like to be lying on one of these sun-exposed hillsides, you know, bleeding from a wound, just waiting to get chipped out. Just horrific. We should start walking. Otherwise, it's just going to be a talking podcast. But... Um, so what, are, what are, we're going to put this map, it's really important that when you listen to this podcast that you have the map with you because it's going to make a lot more sense. So we'll put this picture of Galloping Horse up there and you can see where the attack went in. 
Uh, and then it'll make a lot more sense when we talk about these hills we're going to talk about. But to get to this site, so we've been staying in Honiara. We, the, the first thing to say is we need a local guide to do this. In all parts of the, of the Solomon Islands, you need to travel with a local guide. And there's a, a man called Michael Ben and his family. And uh, the local tourist office puts you in touch with him. And it's pretty, it's pretty cheap. It's, you give him $50 or, or the equivalent to, um, to, to spend the day with him. And you travel out to his little village. You jump in a little taxi and head out. And his village is on the other side of the Matanico River. So the first thing you have to do is wade up to your knees across the river as, as thousands of American servicemen did to get to this spot before you. So that's, it's already an adventure. And, you, and like everything in these, in these, in these uh, adventures, you have to decide whether you're going to uh, take your shoes off and go barefoot across the river or get wet feet for the start. So uh, I usually go with the wet feet option. And then you arrive and you meet Michael. And now we have, we're going to walk up to Galloping Horse. The first thing is it's very high. It's a steep climb. It sort of towers over the village, this huge looming feature. It's a steep climb to get up there. So we've got two options. We can go, we can be brave and go the short route, which is straight up the back of Hill 54, which is the top of the leg of the horse, the top of the back leg, sort of under the tail. We can head straight up the side of Hill 54, which is the way we go if we're in a sort of a hurry, if we're trying to do it shorter. Or there's a more leisurely uh, Jeep trail, which the Americans cut into the side of the hill to actually get Jeeps up there during the campaign. And that goes up Hill 55. So I think today we're going to go up the Jeep trail simply because it's an interesting stroll and exposes us to some more interesting things. So Pete, again, just fascinating the American, you know, the, in, the industry of the Americans that they actually, this is, this is a place that the native people have trouble climbing on foot, but the Americans managed to build a road all the way up there. Just extraordinary. Yeah, I was reading about the the Jeep and the fact that that became the workhorse of the whole campaign, really. It was the only thing that uh, was suitable and, and uh, yeah, it was pro- really proved itself here. Yeah, four-wheel drive, um, Jeep, uh, GP, general purpose was the designation. So that was shortened to Jeep. And that was really the founding of the, um, the, the Willys Jeep we're talking about here, the little green, the famous World War II Jeep. So this is where they really came into their own in Guadalcanal. So we're going to start walking up the Jeep track. Uh, so up, so we're going up Hill 55. So basically we're walking up the back leg of the horse. And as I said, please look at a map so you know what I'm talking about when I refer to this strange upside down horse. But we're now walking up the back leg of the horse up this Jeep trail. And the interesting thing, every time I've been up here, Pete, the most fascinating thing is you start to find lots of relics because this is not a battlefield that millions of people visit. There are still a lot of relics to be found and you need an export permit to take any relics out of the country. So it's it's difficult to get relics out. And so consequently, there's a lot of relics left around. And as you walk up the Jeep trail, you find things on the side of the road. You don't have to look very far to find things. And the first time I did it, it was extraordinary. It's like no battlefield I've ever been to. You could tell what the men were doing in the lead up to the attack by the relics that you would find because there was only two days fighting up here as well. So this wasn't a place that men were coming to and fighting for weeks at a time. Anything you find is from fighting over the two days of the of the battle, the 12th and 13th of January, 1943. So. We started out walking up the Jeep trail and you soon come to the to the point where Jeeps can't advance any further. And then in the scrub all around, <clears throat> you would find food tins. So you could see where the men had come up on Jeeps. They'd unloaded or they'd marched up. And then they gathered in their squads and platoons and had a meal before heading up. So you found discarded K-ration tins everywhere, like the bully beef tins we find on the Western Front. And I kept finding these little cylindrical discs and I, I couldn't work out what they were. And later on, I looked it up and they were actually coffee Little, little coffee cans, small little coffee pouches, um, little metal cans. So the men were brewing up a coffee and eating a, la- a meal of K rations before they were heading up. 
Then as you get a little bit further up, I started finding, again, in the, I'm in the lee of the hill here, so I can't see actually the feature that they're going to be fighting over. So they're still protected here, what this means. But you can see them preparing as they go up. So a little bit further up, we go, and I started to find um, round, flat discs, pressed metal discs, and I instantly recognized what they were. They were the end caps from a cardboard tube that a grenade would come in. So every American grenade was in its own to be shipped out from America was sent in a cardboard tube with a metal end cap. Um, and so I found quite a few of these of these metal end caps lying around in the scrub. And what that meant, you could see that this was the spot where grenades were issued to the men before they went into the attack. And it's going to be important to the story later on, but at this stage, very early in the war, an American high explosive grenade was painted bright yellow. It wasn't the, the drab green that we would come to associate later on. They realized that, that was a silly idea that made them too obvious to, to see in fighting. Uh, so later on, they just painted a yellow stripe around a green grenade. But at this stage of the war, the whole grenade was bright yellow. Uh, and so you'd find the end caps off the uh, off the tubes as you as you head up. Uh, and then um, further on, as we start, as I started to get up further and further and further, I started to find Garand clips as we got near the top of the hill. And so the Garand was the rifle that the Americans were using. And famously, when when you empty the magazine, a clip flies out, and you have to load a new one. And so I started to find these clips everywhere as we got to the top of the hill. So I realized as we started to crest the top of the hill, for the first time, the men were coming under fire. The men could see the enemy and they started shooting from these positions. And as we go on and on through the walk, you would just find more and more relics. Then up in the Japanese positions, you'd find Japanese cartridges from the machine guns. And then right at the top, as we get to the height, you'd find fragments of grenades. You'd find chunks, bright yellow chunks of hand grenade that had exploded uh, as the, after the Americans had thrown them. So... It's a battlefield like none I've ever been to that you can actually tell, you can follow in the footsteps of the history based on the relics you find. Just extraordinary. Have you had that experience on battlefields anywhere, Pete? Yeah, I have. Yeah, you get it here still, but I believe it's not even with all the ploughing and the millions of people literally that have been here over the years. But you still find, you you can find a a German machine gun position by the number of cartridges still around it. You can, as as I discussed in the podcast just recently, uh, again, I realised where the men had crested a rise and set up their Lewis gun. And uh, uh, there there was all of the, the relics from that little action that had taken place there. So you can still do it here but certainly not as as much as that because of course one i presume a lot of things survive there because it um uh, because, because of the temperature and the conditions that things survive probably uh, would you say that would do, do some of the relics yeah, absolutely. Survive there? Uh, and there's so, no farming in any of yeah, these areas yeah, exactly, there's no plowing exactly. the soil's not being turned over so something that was dropped in 1943 is is unless someone moves it is still going to be there um, decades later. It must be reminiscent of Gallipoli to a certain extent because when the bush has been burnt off or when it's been cleared, you get that similar effect in, on the peninsula of Gallipoli, don't, uh, don't we? Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think the same sort of harsh terrain as well, you know, dry ground and, you know, it, it probably just means that things just stay in that top layer of soil. But it's one of the things that you, when you visit Guadalcanal, engaging with the local people and seeing what they've got in their collections in the backs of their huts is quite extra, like bucket loads of stuff, rooms filled with relics of you know, parts of aircraft and machine guns and the turret off a tank. It's just incredible what they find in the jungle in Guadalcanal. But um, so we're heading up. So now we're going to head up and the first major hill we come to is Hill 54. We're going to scramble up onto that. So this is the top of the back leg of the horse. Uh, and Hill 54 was the first feature captured by the Americans. And it wasn't particularly heavily occupied by the Japanese, but it looked out over the ground that was occupied by the Japanese. So this is where the Americans first came under fire. And so when we're on the top of Hill 54, we're actually looking down a, a long valley to higher ground further up the on the horse, as I keep referring to. So sort of on the shoulder of the horse is the higher ground. 
Uh, so a big sweeping valley in front of us. And from this position, James Jones in the Thin Red Line described how he saw... The first thing the Americans did was they just charged straight up the valley. Um, they didn't know where the Japanese were. They knew the Japanese were up on the ridges somewhere, but they didn't know exactly where. So the Americans... And it's quite well depicted in the movie, The Thin Red Line, that the Americans just going forward and all of a sudden coming under this murderous machine gun fire. So the first thing they did was they just charged straight up the guts, up the valley, um, and came under horrific fire from the Japanese on the high ground and suffered a lot of casualties. And James Jones describes a particularly vivid scene where men did manage to crest the high ground and they disappeared from view across the crest as they engaged with the Japanese. And then fairly soon after came running for their lives back across the crest after having been repulsed. And he describes in horror how the last man across who was wounded was scrambling over the crest to come back. And they just saw these two Japanese reach out and grab him and drag him, kicking and screaming back over the crest out of sight. And he was never seen again. So just that first, uh, the first charge viewed from this position on Hill 54 would, um, would have been quite a horrific sight. Yeah, I, I, that was one of the things that I noticed straight away, that how one from one ridge you could see the next one and see what was going on. And I read that account, and the, yeah, it gave me the chills, actually. It's a very chilling account, that. So this was also the uh, the US headquarters they set up here, and uh, so this was where the main uh, headquarters where they, they ran the operation from. Um, so when you're up here, uh, Pete, we've got to look out, like we do in many places on the Western Front, we've got to look out for, firstly, there's foxholes everywhere up here. The Americans didn't dig trenches, they just dug foxholes for two men. So you find lots of foxholes still on Guadalcanal, and they usually reinforce them with rocks and coral, so they're still remaining. Um, but barbed wire as well. There's a lot of barbed wire up here, and it's still all through the tall grass. So it's something to look out for on Guadalcanal. You'll find barbed wire everywhere, and it's pretty nasty. Um, a dear friend of mine, I should actually put say thanks to him, John Innes was the, the pioneer of, uh, of, of battlefield walking on Guadalcanal. He lived there for many years, and was a lovely man from Brisbane and he, he spent decades mapping out the uh, the battlefields of Guadalcanal and he passed away a few years ago from cancer but he um, he suffered a very nasty injury on uh, when he scratched his leg on barbed wire and it got infected and he had to be medevaced back to Brisbane um, and nearly died from the effects of the um, of the infection so obviously if, if you do this in uh, real life it's wonderful and rewarding but be careful of barbed wire because it can be quite nasty particularly in the tropics so it's an interesting spot. It's a good spot to get a good perspective of exactly where we are and what we're doing. And we now walk down off Hill 54, so onto the really the belly of the horse. And we're now the first part of the walk. There is a track that takes us up here that we're following, but this takes us down into the valley, the valley of death, where those Americans in the first waves attacked and just the slaughter. And this is where you find some really interesting relics. You find a lot of Garand clips. In fact, you don't even bother to pick them up because there's so many of them. So these are, again, clips from the American rifles. After they fired their 10 rounds, the clip would, fo- would fly out. Um, but also you start to find Japanese projectiles from the machine guns. So actually the bullets that were fired at the Americans and have hit the ground and, and you still find those. So again, scenes of horror of Americans firing, you know, you find American cartridges as well. And then Japanese bullets in the ground showing that the Japanese were firing with, with deadly intent on the Americans as they charged up. So it's always a somber feeling as you walk through that valley knowing just when, what went on. And you get this incredible perspective up ahead of the high ground where you knew the Japanese were. And you can just imagine the Japanese cresting that ridge, pouring fire down on you. It really feels like a big basin rather than a valley. It's, it's awful to think of, um, of being trapped down there with that fire coming in from up above you. And Pete, as an ex-serviceman, that must be every soldier's worst nightmare. 
Oh, indeed. Uh, enfilade fire, um, plunging fire. Yeah, and being stuck in the low ground, uh, not good at all. Uh, especially if it's if you've not been briefed properly and you're not quite sure exactly where you are. Uh, yeah, uh, because you get stuck, you can't go backwards, you can't go forwards, and you're left with that that issue. What do I do? Do I try and uh, advance or do I try and go back? And so, yeah, it's uh, one of the nightmares. I just go back to the Grand because I'm just interested. That the, the Grand, mm. that's the automatic weapon, isn't it? Or semi-automatic, so you don't that's have right. to it recock the- it. Yeah. Exactly. It was the first uh, semi-automatic rifle to be issued as a standard service rifle to an army. Really important and overlooked, I think, in terms of the American success during the Second World War, because every other major power was using bolt-action rifles, but the Americans were using the semi-automatic rifle, as everyone would have seen from Saving Private Ryan and Band of Brothers and, uh, and even the Pacific in the later episodes. Um, and of course, the army, we're talking army now. I know I mentioned that the Marines were using bolt-action rifles at the start of the Guadalcanal campaign, but by now the army's there and they're using the Grand uh, semi-automatic. But even for that platoon or squad, it gave them a much greater rate of fire than a German or Japanese unit opposite them who were using bolt-action rifles. So one one squad of men could put a much greater rate of fire, even without using machine guns, on an enemy position. It was it was quite important in Normandy. It was very important in the Pacific, just the, the amount of fire they could put down. And thankfully for us as historians today, it leaves telltale signs because those clips were not reusable. So once they flew out of the, of the gun, they just stayed on the ground. So we can see where the men were fighting. Many times in the Pacific, I've charted where actions took place by the by the grand clips you would find lying around. So we're going to continue along this valley now. And now we're going to climb up some, uh, some high ground. And this is Hill 52. And this is basically a ridge that runs north-south across the front shoulder of the horse, uh, if you're looking at the map. And this was the main Japanese defensive position because it faces the whole feature. It's the highest ground and it's a fascinating spot. As you come up, you're now walking up towards where the Japanese were and where the Americans eventually captured. They Eventually, they, they came along the ridges on both sides instead of going through the valley and they, they outflanked the position and eventually were successful in capturing it. And it's an extraordinary place, one of the highlights of a, of a walk along Galloping Horse because you see American foxholes, you see Japanese foxholes, um, and this is also where the Americans dug in before they launched the next part of the attack once they captured it. But one of the most fascinating things you will see is the remains of a proper Japanese machine gun bunker. And this is the only one I've seen in the Pacific because they were fairly insubstantial. They weren't built to last these things. So the Japanese would build, would dig a big hole and then reinforce it with with coconut logs. Um, and so obviously over the years, storms and landslides and just the, the, the perils of weather, those things don't last. But this is one of the only ones that I've seen, I think because the ground's quite rocky up here, it's, it's, actually, it's actually held its form. Um, but it's the only place in the Pacific I've seen where you can actually stand in a Japanese machine gun bunker and get that firsthand perspective. It's absolutely extraordinary. It's just, I mean, now it's just a rectangular depression in the ground, but you step down into it, it's still fairly deep, it's still probably four or five feet deep. And of course, it then would have been built up on top with coconut logs. But you stand there and you are now right where those Japanese were and you are looking down the full sweep of the valley and you are in the, you know, you're in the position where they were firing those Nambu machine guns at the Americans and where dozens of men were killed from this position. And it's just extraordinary. And it just shows the, the, the very strong defensive positions that the Japanese picked, much like the Germans in the First World War during Normandy. The Japanese were very good at picking high ground, picking good positions to defend from. So just an extraordinary place. And again, scattered all around are Japanese uh, machine gun cartridges fired from those machine guns. And again, grenade fragments from the Americans. So it tells the story. The Japanese fought to the death here. No, Very few Japanese were captured during this. No Americans were captured alive by the Japanese. They were all killed. Any Americans that fell into Japanese hands. 
So you find this this ghastly combination of machine gun cartridges from the Japanese defenders and grenade fragments as the Americans came forward and throwing their grenades. Just just amazing, amazing sights. How, Pete, how important is that when you're on a battlefield to stand in a spot and know that you're directly connecting with the men that fought there? Uh, I think it's very important. And, and certainly if you're with a group and you're you're explaining what, what's going on, there's there's nothing better. And it always cause, causes a, ooh, if you bend down and pick up a shrapnel ball or a piece of shrapnel, or in this case, a piece of yellow grenade, uh, then uh, it really it really does bring it home. And to pass something like that round for everybody to handle, then, yeah, it's uh, it's one of, one of the, the things that I think that really brings a battlefield alive because when you touch something whether it be a grand clip or whatever it will be then you know that the probably the last person that touched that was the man himself you know, the man himself who was there who either threw that grenade or, or or fed that clip into his his weapon then you're you're touching it and uh, i think yeah i think those kind of things uh, uh, just bring a battlefield alive i think the, the grenade the grenade fragments were always really uh, really touching to me as well because they always really spoke to me because the, the man had held a grenade in his hand. He could probably only throw it 20 or 30 metres and you're not going to throw a grenade unless you're in deep, deep, close contact with the enemy. It's just such a personal way of fighting. There wasn't a lot of artillery up here. There wasn't a lot of air power. They did a bit of artillery. They fired some artillery pieces, a bit of mortar action. You find a lot of mortar fragments around the place as well. But, you know, an artillery shell that's been fired from three miles away it does not have that quite same personal connection as a grenade that's been thrown at 10 metres away. And in this instance, they were probably lobbed through the loopholes of the uh, of the pillbox to take out the Japanese defenders. So an extraordinary place. And then uh, you can see the foxholes along the uh, sort of along the southern slope as well, where the Americans dug in facing the jungle so that the Japanese couldn't attack them from that side. And basically, the Americans dug in and then, and then pressed on. And at this point, though, they were in a bit of trouble, the Americans, because they'd been fighting for the best part of a day. It's the height of the wet season uh, and they were, in spite of that, it it had rained on them, but they couldn't, they had no way of collecting the water under fire. And the Americans had a real problem. They were running out of water. The the men were suffering from heat stroke pretty badly after having fought all day. They couldn't get water up to them. It was too exposed to get water up to them. The men had drunk all the water in their water bottles and it was a serious issue. Some of the men involved in this died eventually from the results of heat stroke um, because it was such a desperate situation. And the reports that I was reading and doing research for this were talking about how difficult it was for the platoons to get men moving forward. They needed a very strong company commander who would lead them forward in this and get the most out of the men because they just they, they were they were dead on their feet, um, even without fighting. So just, again, horrific conditions. It seems that we talk about these battlefields all the time, Pete, from from uh, you know the, the perils of a, of a European winter to the, the, the scorching heat of... Gallipoli to now the, the the jungles of Guadalcanal. It's you know we we don't choose to put our men in uh, you know, our fighting men in uh, in good positions to fight, do we? No, and I think it's uh, it's when the shortfalls uh, they really stand out when you have a, a, a position like this where you can't get water. Uh, and I, I just like comparing things with other actions. Uh, and uh, I remember my son coming back from Afghanistan for the first time and explaining to me with a camelback that they now uh, carry their water in. So it's not in a water bottle any longer. It's very accessible. It's on their back and they have a straw effectively that comes into their mouth. So it's just just below your chin. 
So you can suck uh, water out of your camelback at any time you uh, you need it. And my lad in his first uh, belt, uh, uh, experience of combat in Afghanistan remembers that by lunchtime he'd drunk all his water and he couldn't even remember drinking it. He couldn't remember uh, uh, drinking any of it. But uh, during gaps in the combat he would sip a bit more and sip a bit more and sip a bit more. And, and before he knew it, uh, lunchtime it is all gone and he didn't get resupplied until the evening. So he said that afternoon was was tough uh, because he, he had no water at all. Just terrific. It's the it's the two things that the, the time and time again. Obviously, I've never been in combat, and Pete, you served, so you'd have more of a uh, perspective on this than I do. But the two things that come out of it all the time are the thirst and the fatigue. That this is a universal thing of soldiers that combat experience of not just not just the physical exertion, but the experience of combat. It makes men incredibly thirsty, and it makes them incredibly tired. And um, you can imagine it's some of the toughest exertions people would ever have to put themselves through. And this was uh, this was certainly no exception, the fighting uh, across Galloping Horse. So where we are now, so if we now turn to the West, we're now looking at the final positions that had to be captured by the Americans. So they're, they're now looking out on the the second phase of this attack. And we're talking now the, the, the front shoulder and the head of the horse, the neck and the head of the horse that has to be captured. And this is really interesting territory here as you walk up along it now, as you walk along, you sort of walk along the southern slope as you as you go up and you actually walk right past where H Company dug in on the left to defend of the 2nd Battalion and you find lots of foxholes there where they just obviously set up machine guns to defend the positions, the gains that they made. But you, you head up this valley and it's it's funny, you, you go down into a deep valley and then you come up onto a ridge and these ridges run crossways in front of you. They, they don't run, they're, they're running perpendicular across your the field that you're walking and so you have the same experience the americans did you leave the high ground you dip down into valley and there you're sheltered there might have been a few mortar rounds coming over but you couldn't get hit by the machine gun fire you were you were relatively safe in these areas but then you had to have the courage or basically following the order to then walk up the next ridge and as soon as you crested that ridge you came under fire from machine guns again and on each of these ridges the japanese were dug in with machine gun bunkers so you would have to dip into a valley come up capture the next the, the next position, dip into the next valley, come up and capture the next one. And so the first high ground we come to is, a, is another, a smaller ridge, but uh, it's not as high and it's not quite as long, but it's still fairly prominent. It's known as Exton Ridge. Uh, and Exton Ridge was named um, after uh, the, uh, the, a lieutenant of the, uh, of the platoon, uh, Robert M. Exton. And so they went down in the valley, they came up onto the top of this ridge, and then they came under fire from the Japanese positions further along the feature. And so Exton manned a machine gun and was pouring fire in to support his men charging forward. And a Japanese mortar landed pretty much right on top of him, and it blew both his legs off. Uh, and his men rushed to help him and to put tourniquets on to stem the flow. Uh, and he kept pushing them off, telling them to stop wasting their time, that he knew there was nothing that could be done. And, and soon after, he bled to death uh, on Exton Ridge. So Exton Ridge was named after... Lieutenant Robert M. Exton, or Lieutenant Robert M. Exton, who gave his life there. Again, just these small little heroic tales, Pete. Just, a, you know, one life that disappeared. Just an incredibly heroic tale. Yeah. Uh, I, I always think of the practicalities straight away. I mean, very sad. But then you've got to obviously remove all of these bodies of the men that are killed as well. And and it's hard enough, you know, removing the wounded and the living. But then to actually get the dead off these of these ridges must have been a, a tough operation uh, as well. And... Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Do you know where the Japanese are buried? Were they removed from here? All the, the Japanese from from uh, the section? Japanese were generally buried in mass graves all over um, all over Guadalcanal, and for decades after the war, and still it goes on today. You, every time at Guadalcanal, there's usually a party of Japanese there who are coming to look for bodies, uh, and they um, they find the skeletal remains, and then they burn them, 
you know, they hold a religious ceremony and, and cremate them at the Japanese memorial and then scatter them in the jungle near the memorial. So the Americans tended just to bury the Japanese in mass graves, but their philosophy, as it's always been, was no man left behind. They would remove all of their own bodies. And there was a very large cemetery near the airfield on Guadalcanal um, throughout the Second World War. Those bodies had now been moved either to the Philippines or to Hawaii, to the Punchbowl Cemetery. So last time I was in Hawaii, I visited many of the men that I'd followed on Guadalcanal. And I believe Sims and Exton, the two people we're talking about here, are both buried um, in Punchbowl in Hawaii. So now, probably the most interesting feature and a feature of this battle that has captivated me for a very long time, the Battle of Sims Ridge and small action by, again, by any standard, uh, really only a handful of men participated in this. This is where the movie The Thin Red Line did a really good job. The scenes, the climactic scenes where, who was it? It was John Cusack, I think, played the role of, of, uh, of the officer that led this charge. But it's a very good example of just this small unit, a handful of men launching this attack. So basically they got to this, uh, the, the second last feature before the horse's head. And the horse's head is just a bald hill. Um, and so it wasn't a particularly good defensive position. Uh, the Japanese had some bunkers up there, but the main defensive position was the horse's neck, this area known as Sims Ridge. And the Japanese had a very strong network of bunkers dug in at the top of, of Sims Ridge. And so the Americans had arrived. They'd actually by now swung around the right flank. They swung around the base of Exton Ridge and they came up by the right flank. And so they were attacking, they were attacking up a, a gentle slope up towards the Japanese bunkers. And um, the, the officer of the, uh, of the company sent forward um, uh, a man named Weld, left, uh, Lieutenant Weldon Sims, led a few men forward, but also with the battalion uh, XO, who was um, Captain Charles Davis. Uh, and they went forward together with a handful of men and they found that in front of the Japanese positions, even though there's a lot of machine gun fire, there was a very low, there was a low rock shelf which extended along the ridge. And the fascinating thing, Pete, is it's still there today. You can literally crawl out in the, in the, in the well, not the footsteps, in the hand and knee prints of these men. You can crawl out, you can see exactly where they dug in, there's foxholes where they dug in, and then you can crawl out and you can keep sheltered from the crest behind this rock wall. So they went out with a very small party of men just to reconnoiter around and Sims decided he needed a better look. So bravely he rose up above the rock shelf and took a bullet straight through the chest and was killed instantly and then removed. So that ridge is now known as Sims Ridge after after Weldon Sims. But Charles Davis, the, the battalion XO was there with him as well and he, uh, he noted the situation and noted that there was a, a, a complex of Japanese bunkers. So he went back and reported back to his commanding officer and said, give me six men and we will sneak up that rock shelf. And then when we're in position, we will blow whistles so that you know we're in position and we'll cover the main charge as it comes up. And so that's what they did. So they said to uh, they said to Davis, okay, off you go. They gave him six men and they headed off and they, they snuck up this rock shelf. What happened though was when they got just below the bunkers in position to blow their whistles, the Japanese spotted them and started throwing grenades and firing at them. And so Davis decided to take matters into his own hands. So he just said to the six men, let's go. And they charged straight up the slope and basically went crazy amongst the Japanese position. And the, the, the six or seven men in his party killed scores of Japanese and captured two or three bunkers, machine gun positions. Um, it was a, a brutal fight at one stage. Davis went to fire and his rifle jammed. So he pulled out his revolver and killed a Japanese with that and grenades going off all around. And none of the Americans were killed in the charge. They all survived. A couple of them were wounded, but they all survived. And they captured the entire position that had been meant for most of the battalion. Three companies had been allocated to take this, uh, take this, uh, take this position. And by the time they got there, Davis and his men were already holding it. 
Um, and I've told this story before, but one of the times when I went up there that one of the men involved in this attack, when they were issuing weapons, he took with him a shotgun, a Remington pump action shotgun he took with him up there. And the other blokes in the in the squad gave him a little bit of a hard time about, don't you want your grand or, a, you know, or something a bit more effective than that? He said, no, I just feel more comfortable with the shotgun. He used it to great effect to clear these Japanese bunkers. And one time when I was up there walking Sims Ridge, I looked down and there at my feet was the metal end cap off a World War II shotgun cartridge. The cardboard cartridge had long since disappeared, but the metal end cap was still there. So I have that now on my shelf and it's one of my most prized possessions. So that it's not often that you can find a relic that you know not only what day it was fired but or what action it was fired in, but you can know the, the man that fired it. During that, uh, during that heroic action, just extraordinary. It's a fantastic story uh, that Matt. You've, uh, I've heard it before from you, but it's just uh, yeah. Again, it makes the hairs on the back of my neck go every time you, you tell it. It's uh, yeah, great to have something that is so connectable to an individual. I haven't been able to find out his name. I, I I know the names of the men in the squad, but I haven't been able to find out who was the one that carried the shotgun. But that would be my next piece of research. But um, yeah, that was a just an absolutely amazing find. And I had the honour a few years ago of taking Charles Davis's son back to this site because I should say that, unsurprisingly, Charles Davis was awarded the Medal of Honour for this, the American equivalent of the Victoria Cross for this action on Sims Ridge. And as I said, depicted very well in the book and in the movies, The Thin Red Line, it's the crucial part of the whole battle. And I had the honour of taking um, um, Charles Davis's son, Kirk, uh, to this area and that was very emotional for him uh, three or four years ago to to walk this ground and he was very very teary at that spot where he had grown up with his dad hearing so much about this fighting and then to stand in the spot and we found the remains of the bunkers and to stand right there we stood below the rock shelf where sims had been killed and sims was a mate of his dad's and so he had heard the story when sims was killed to stand in that spot and to walk up that slope and stand there where his dad had been awarded the medal of honor just a just a, a wonderful moment I know you always talk about Pete taking family members back as just a, such a special part of the experience, but that for me was one of the most uh, special parts of the whole experience. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a special, if you're with a, a group as well, to have somebody who can tell a story and have a direct uh, connection to that story uh, yeah, enhances everybody's experience. And I always get people uh, out front, if I can, if they're willing to, and uh, almost without exception they are, to tell those little stories, those personal stories about, about something that went on uh, on the site that you're visiting because it just, just brings it home and makes it so much more real to people. It's always, um, I found a very strong, I had a very strong connection with the story of Charles Davis because you could, you could walk literally in his footsteps and the footsteps of his men in this action. And it just, it just, it was something that really spoke to me and, and really had a big influence on me. So several times when I went to Guadalcanal doing other things, not even to do battlefield tours, just doing other things that I was doing as a historian, I dedicated a day or two to head up on Galloping Horse and to walk in the footsteps of, of these men as they attacked. And every time I went up there, I discovered something new. So, Firstly, being on Sims Ridge was enough. And then the next time I went up there, I found a site where I thought the Japanese bunkers probably were. And then I went up the next trip and some local people confirmed it for me and then said, oh, yeah, look, here's some Japanese machine gun cartridges. So just uh, extraordinary place. We're going to head down very briefly off Sims Ridge, dip into a little valley and then up onto simply to say that we've done it. We're going to walk up onto the final objective, which is Hill 53, which is the head of the horse. And this was the final position. There was a famous photo taken of Charles Davis and his men up here on Hill 53, standing next to the opening to a Japanese bunker. Interestingly, not one of the bunkers they'd captured. This was definitely on the horse's head on Hill 53, but this was the final point. It's, 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 it's a hill that looks out over an absolute sea of jungle in every direction, and this is the final point. The Americans dug in here, 
And that was really the end of the battle. They'd captured it. They'd denied the Japanese uh, the ability to resupply the Gifu. The Americans then held it for the rest of the campaign. I mean, I say the rest of the campaign. The campaign ended on February 9. So they only had to hold it for another month before the Japanese all packed up and left. But um, yeah, just extraordinary. Amazing work done by the army in really difficult conditions, but just great success. And you can stand there on Hill 53 and look back over the battlefield and look at the the jungle that surrounds you and just and think of both sides. It was very difficult fighting for both sides and just a very special place to be, Pete. Indeed. I'm just going to add something else that I just, in my research, that I found was interesting because artillery was such a, a very big part of uh, of the Great the Great War, the First World War. Um, but uh, one of the things that they trialled here was uh, uh, time on target, which uh, had never been used before. This is the very first uh, location that it's going to be used during the Second World War, and it's where guns at different locations and further back at different uh, distances are firing with the uh, the aim that the rounds all arrive at the same time at the target, where previously, of course, different guns firing from different locations, they'd say open fire at 7.30 and uh, they'd all open fire, but the rounds from the guns further away would arrive at a different time. So here was the first time they, they, they tried time on target here uh, during the fighting on these ridges. You do find a fair chunk of artillery fragments around, sometimes some pretty big ones too, which were fired from ships out in the in the bay supplying supplying um in iron bottom sound it's now called because there's so many ships and planes on the bottom of it but but supporting the the attack uh bombs from aircraft as well they had fairly limited air support here but some aircraft did come in and, and bomb the site um and mortars as well lots of mortar rounds the, obviously the mortar was a, a small artillery weapon that that squads could carry with them so mortars on both sides you find japanese and and uh, american mortar fragments as well is uh, pretty key when we leave here now pete we can either head back the way we came and it doesn't take too long to get back down or um we can do something quite novel we can walk down through the jungle there's a waterfall and if you're with a guide that's offering this as a as part of the service they bring inflatable truck tubes with them and you um float back down the Matanico river which is um, quite a nice way to do it and float I'd back down to the to the village i'd be going that way definitely <laughs> that's a very good way to do it and then you head back into town and enjoy a cold beer as the sun sets over savo island and and iron bottom sound it, it, it's just an extraordinary place it's not a it's a bit of a challenging destination the the solomon islands but it's a rewarding one if you're uh, if you're in any way into military history it's an absolutely fascinating destination so i mean this has just been one walk we're going to do pete out of many on guadalcanal i'm sure but um, what have you thought, Pete? Did you, could you see it there in your mind's eye? I'm hooked. I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've promised Pete that when uh, when he makes it back out to Australia at some stage on an extended trip, we'll, we'll do a trip up to the Sollies and, and check it out because it's a, it's, a, it's a remarkable place. But um, it's been a remarkable walk. I hope, uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I do. As you can probably tell, it's a place that's very important to me and that I never tire of going back to. And uh, I haven't been in, obviously, a couple of years with COVID, and I'm desperate to get back there. So thank you for joining me and enabling me to, uh, humouring me as I, uh, as, I, as I recount my adventures up on Galloping Horse. But read the history books. Get, there's, there's wonderful resources online about it. Definitely have a look at the, a lot of photos taken from the time and the maps and, um, and uh, just get, get your head around the geography. And it's a, it's a fascinating small unit action, which, in my experience, are some of the most interesting ones you can follow on a battlefield. Pete, as always... Thank you for joining me, mate. Well, thank you. I don't uh, feel I've been particularly helpful, but it's been uh, very interesting. Pete, you've been great as always, and uh, look forward to catching up with you next week. Yeah, great. Look forward to it. (laughs) 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.